What's up, Teaholics? Welcome back to the Tea on Crime. It's your host, Britt. And I'm the co-host, Jessica, wife and true crime skeptic. Just as a reminder before we get started, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply our own and are only presented to educate. We've linked the case sources in the episode notes below. This week, I'm telling you the story of Denise Amber Lee. This is one of those cases that I was really excited to tell you because I think in true crime, at least for me and probably most people that like true crime, there's always that one story that when you hear it, you are disappointed or you are mortified or whatever it may be. And you're like, I'm going to remember that. Isn't that the case for most true crime stories and being mortified? And- you know, I think over time, unfortunately, the more true crime you listen to, you're kind of like, okay, I don't know if you just become numb to it. Yeah, definitely. But it's always sad, no matter the story we report on. But I think there are still some of those stories that stick out and you're like, wow, that was terrible. So disappointing as in how everything was handled or disappointing as in how much I hate true crime. (laughs) I think this one will be how everything was handled. Oh, okay. (laughs) Don't sound so thrilled. (laughs) I can't wait. When you're little, the thought is kind of placed into your head that if you're in trouble, you call 911. So you kind of grow up thinking that if something is wrong, if someone is going to hurt you, that's what you do. You dial 911. Because that's where help is supposed to be on the other side of the line, right? I'm sure occasionally, yes. Occasionally. (laughs) Not my case, but yeah. (laughs) Denise was born August 6th, 1986 in Inglewood, Florida to parents Rick Goff and mother Sue Goff. Growing up, all Denise ever wanted to be was a mother. Denise was described as being a bookworm and extremely shy. Denise met her husband while they were both in high school. Her husband, Nate Lee, hung out with the cool kids in school, and come her senior year in high school, Denise finally got over her shyness and was bold enough to ask out her crush that had caught her eye. It wasn't long into their relationship that Nate and Denise learned that opposites really do attract. That's funny. So she was a nerd and he was like the jock. He was like the cool guy. Reminds me of like 18 candles. 16 16 candles. Words are hard, and so are movie titles. 16, I corrected it. Nate can be heard in an interview with Dateline stating that he should have known Denise was the one when she approached him first because the fact that she was so shy and had the nerve to start talking to him first, he thought that was really cool. The way that Nate talks about and describes his wife in all of the interviews that I have seen, you can see how genuinely in love with her he was, and they really did seem like the perfect match. Three weeks after their first date on Valentine's Day, Nate bought Denise a little ring with a heart shape on it for her gift. Denise loved it. She never took the ring off, and it wasn't long after that she received another ring when Nate asked her to marry him. Oh, okay, so it was quick. It was very fast. Nate and Denise had two boys, Noah and Adam. Nate worked three jobs to make ends meet while their small little family was growing. There was more love in their young household than there was money. But they were happy and they were very much in love. Nate and Denise rented a house in Northport, Florida, which is 40 miles south of Sarasota. (laughs) I just want you to know. Sarasota. Sarasota. But there's a T in there and not a D like you would think with soda. So I had a little bit of a hard time there. That's all right. 
It was a rural community. <laughs> Words are hard. A, a what? Community? We're not going to read. It was a small community say, in the middle of nowhere. I heard you say Aurora. <laughs> a rural. You know, when I was putting this script together, I should have left that word out knowing I have a hard time saying it you in just, general. You need to just Brit isms all of these script isms just yeah. make it very simple so in a rural <laughs> area yes uh, thank you <laughs> <laughs> they loved it denise's father rick wasn't crazy about the neighborhood it was basically a construction ghost town full of empty halfway finished houses since this was around the time that the market was going through huge changes but it was super cheap rent and it was brand new and that's what denise and nate could afford at the time it was perfect for them at least until the afternoon of January 17th, 2008. Nate recalls that it was drizzling that morning when he left for his job. Denise was home with the boys, and they frequently checked in with each other throughout the day. Nate says that the last time he spoke with Denise that afternoon was at exactly 11.09 a.m., and it was roughly a five-minute conversation discussing normal things. They usually talked about, like, how their day was going, how the boys were doing, Nate did ask her that morning to open the windows in the house so that they could leave the air off and save some money. Oh, I feel like it's going to get really sad. It's going to get really disappointing. Hmm. He didn't have another chance to call her that day before he left work at 5 o'clock that evening. When he couldn't get a hold of her on his drive home, he tried to call her around eight times, but she didn't answer. Nate claims that he didn't start to get nervous until he pulled onto their street he noticed the windows that Denise told him were open were now shut. Once he walked into the house, he found his two sons, six-month-old Adam and two-year-old Noah, lying together in a crib, but Denise was nowhere to be found. It's horrible. I can just, I was trying to kind of put myself in his shoes when I was putting all of this together and thinking how scary that would be not being able to get hold of your spouse, right, on your right, your mm -hmm. drive home and he tries to call her eight different times in the fact that she's not answering, but then to walk inside and see his sons laying together in the crib, and then she's nowhere. That's just, it was really sad. Denise was never known to leave her boys alone. Nate could tell it was hot in the house, but the windows were shut down and not latched, almost like someone was in a hurry. He found Denise's cell phone and keys were lying on the couch, and her purse was on the table. He immediately called 911. He reports that just after he arrived home from work, he can't find his wife, and that his boys were home alone inside. There was no sign of forced entry, and the only thing that wasn't normal was the fact that Denise wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Nate immediately called his father-in-law, Rick. Rick is a retired police sergeant. Mm -hmm. Rick had been trying to get a hold of Denise earlier, earlier in the afternoon as well, since he wanted to invite them over for dinner that evening. When he answered the call from Nate, he assumed that Nate was calling about the dinner plans. Nate told Rick that he couldn't find Denise. Of course, we all know how it looks when spouses go missing, and it's usually the other spouse that is looked for. Mm -hmm. So everyone automatically goes to blaming the husband or the wife, either yes. way. Mm -hmm. Rick called the police department and let them know that this case was different. This missing person's case was serious, and he asked for their help. Police came over immediately and started knocking on doors. One neighbor told police that she had seen a white male sitting in a dark green Camaro by himself across from Nate and Denise's house. Police had the description of the suspect and the vehicle, so they issued a bolo, which is a be on the lookout. Oh, okay. 
I was like, Bolo. <laughs> Rick started to plead with all of the local police departments asking them for help. He was all over social media asking for help and was basically calling in every favor that he could. Everyone was showing up from Highway Patrol to the marshals. Oh, wow. Okay. So they had a lot of people show up for them. Mm-hmm. At 6.14 p.m., the police department received a strange 911 call from someone that was claiming to be the kidnapped victim herself, Denise Lee. But the call was real, even though everyone thought that it was fake. Right. Because, I mean, I think that's a normal thing. You would think it was kind of like a teenager playing a prank, which obviously is not funny. But you've got someone saying, I'm Denise Lee, while all of this is going on. Right. I I wouldn't think it was a prank, but okay. Well, maybe you need to listen to more 911 calls and true crime. I I guess we'll have to. Or you just listen to each call and, you know, decide based off of the call. Okay. (laughs) Anyway. Somehow. Denise managed to take her kidnapper's phone long enough to call 911 for help. That phone call is still sealed by law enforcement. It has never been released to the public, and only a handful of people have heard the call and listened to her voice. It was her screaming. Her husband recalls that it was, in fact, her, and that's the first thing you hear is her screaming and saying she was kidnapped. Denise tricked her kidnapper into thinking she was having a conversation with him but the whole time she was actually providing key information to the police dispatcher, including the make and model and color of the vehicle she was in, Mm -hmm. the fact that she had been kidnapped, the fact that her two boys were left home alone, that her kidnapper was a stranger to her, and that her name was Denise, and she included her address. During this call, she was very smart. That's a smart lady. Right? He didn't realize until seven minutes into the conversation that his phone was missing. The The call immediately ends after that. After hearing all of this, Nate had hope. He thought, this is it. They have all the information they need. They can catch him and we can save her. But it wasn't that easy. The cell phone that was being used was, of course, a burner phone. Mm-hmm. It couldn't be traced. All that could happen with the burner phone is police would have to wait and trace the cell phone towers that the pl- that the phone would ping off of. This would not give them a specific location, but it would give them an idea of surrounding areas. Yeah. The police were finding haystacks, not needles. From the phone number associated with the burner phone, they were able to at least figure out who the phone belonged to. Records show that the phone belonged to Michael King. That name meant nothing to De- Denise's family. They couldn't place him. At 6.23 p.m., so exactly nine minutes after the phone call that Denise made to 911, another call came in. This phone call was from the kidnapper's own family. Oh. Michael's cousin's daughter, Sabrina, called 911 and stated that just minutes before she heard a story from her father, which again is the kidnapper's cousin, Mm -hmm. that Michael had stopped by her dad's house with a girl that was tied up in his car. Sabrina stated that her father watched this tied-up girl get out of Michael's car and watched Michael put her back inside. Michael came over to borrow a gas tank and a shovel. Denise was four miles from her own home at the time that this happened. And her, his cousin just thought that this was normal? Right. Oh. Just kind of went along with it, like, all right, you're throwing a tied-up girl into the back of your car. It's fine. You guys are having a bonfire. Exactly. Sabrina hangs up and police right away get another 911 call. This one was from a woman named Jane. Jane's call came in at 6.30 p.m. 
She let the dispatcher know her exact cross streets of the location and the stoplight that she was sitting at and that she was calling in because while stopped at this stoplight, a man in a blue Camaro pulled up next to her and Jane could hear a child screaming in the back seat. Jane said the child was both screaming and banging on the window next to her. She said it's a sound she'll never forget. She stated she looked over at the man, they made eye contact, and suddenly Jane saw a hand come up and bang on the backseat window. Of course, at this time, Jane had had no idea of the search that was actually underway for Denise. She thought she was witnessing a child abduction. During the call, the operator was taking in all of the details, but was very distracted, distracted, (laughs) distracted, (laughs) difficult. So she was very distracted because she had coworkers hollering at her in the background, doing a lot of side conversation, trying to get more detail on what was happening. Mm -hmm. The dispatcher was very slow to respond in the call. You can hear Jane giving directions as to where the kidnapper is turning and asking the dispatcher if she should follow the car. But the operator was so distracted that by the time she responded, Jane had lost the car in traffic and was unable to follow. Oh, how sad. Within a matter of 16 minutes, police had already received three different 911 calls related to the kidnapping case, one from Denise, one from the cousin's daughter, and one from the witness that was right next to her. Police had highway patrol all over the freeway looking for them, and they even had a helicopter searching, and all the while they were still not able to locate Denise. They seemed to always be just a step behind the suspect. Police showed up at Michael's house to search. Frustratingly enough, they were able to tell that they had just missed Michael being there. They found duct tape, and apparent signs that someone had just been there, but the house was empty. One more 911 call came in at 6.50 p.m. That's the fourth call that day, and this one was made from a payphone. The caller can be heard telling 911 that someone was taken and in a green Camaro, and you could tell that the girl inside didn't want to be taken. The man wanted to remain unidentified, When he was asked if the man was going to hurt the girl, he stated he didn't know, but she looked like she didn't want to be there. Police were able to figure out that it was Michael King's cousin calling Harold, the father of Sabrina. Harold said he watched the woman struggle while she was at his house, claimed that Denise did in fact manage to get out of the car and shout, call 911 before Michael threw her in the back seat. And Harold was told by Michael not to worry about it, and he shrugged it off. And then he grew a conscience. And called. 20 minutes later. A little too late. Yeah. Yeah. After Harold's call, the tip stopped coming in. It wasn't until two and a half hours later, at 9.56 p.m., that a highway patrol officer pulled over a green Camaro. King was behind the wheel, but Denise, she was nowhere to be found. Oh, no. King was soaking wet when he stepped out of the car, a muddy shovel was found inside the car, and a cell phone with the battery removed was also located. Police were too late. King had an explanation for what had happened that day. He told a rambling story to his cousin Harold, who police at the time had allowed into the interview room after King was arrested to meet with him. Of course, the conversation was all recorded. King told his cousin that he got hijacked and both him and Denise had been kidnapped, but he was blindfolded 
and couldn't tell the police where the kidnapper had dumped Denise's body. How terrible. Isn't that horrible? What kind of human being? I'm confused how he's completely unrelated, it sounds like, to this entire family. Right. For two days, police searched for her. Canine dogs found Denise's body two miles away from where King had been pulled over and arrested. She was located in a shallow grave and had been shot in the head. This story has a horrific end and left a community in shock. In the backseat of the car that King had been driving, the police located a heart-shaped ring, the ring that Nate bought Denise many years ago on Valentine's Day, the ring that she never took off. I think she left it there for Nate and for the police to know, this is mine, Mm -hmm. I was here, it was me. Both the tragedy and the senselessness of this story is huge. There is still to this day no connection between King and Denise. King was a 36-year-old out-of-work plumber who stopped showing up to his job one day. On the morning of January 17th, he'd been shooting guns at a local gun range. He had no criminal history. This case was simply the wrong place at the wrong time. We don't know if he had been watching Denise for some time and that's how she became his victim or how exactly it came to be. It's kind of strange that, you know, is it one of those things where she had her windows open and some random guy was just hanging out and watching her and decided that's the girl like I'm gonna go kidnap her I mean it could have just been he was having a mental breakdown and the opportunity obviously presented itself and he just took it as a sign and made an awful awful decision right four 911 calls from witnesses one call coming from the own victim herself Do you remember our suspect, Jane? Mm -hmm. She called the police department back after she saw Michael King on TV and realized that she recognized the man. When Jane was speaking with the dispatcher, the dispatcher asked her what 911 call. They were drawing a blank. At the time, Jane had crossed over the Sarasota County line when she called, which means the call was routed to the Charlotte County Police Department and come to find out, The call was never routed to anyone else. The dispatcher never sent the call to Sarasota. No one ever knew. Denise was let down, I believe. I'm not saying that this could have been solved, but there were plenty of witnesses that were calling in. You even have the own victim herself calling in. And it just seems to me that we should have been able to provide more help for Denise. It's terrible that no one was able to help her and no one was able to get to her well it's sad that the 911 dispatcher was so distracted because obviously that was the opportunity for jane to follow the vehicle and right and she missed it and it's in no means you know jane's fault because she did everything correct but i can't imagine being her and having that regret every day because i think some part of you would feel like it was your fault you know had i made the turn and followed him maybe denise would still be alive so i just want to bring up the point that with this story i'm sure there's a lot of theories and people have their opinions but i was just curious i guess my question here is obviously it's you know a random random place wrong time kind of situation but like did he climb in through the window did he walk into the house i guess i'm just not understanding how exactly she was kidnapped how everything right yeah and it kind of makes you wonder if you know maybe he threatened the boys 
And she was like, no, take me instead. I don't know, because then the windows were closed, right? So maybe she closed the windows to obviously stop the boys from freezing Mm -hmm. because Nate did make it a point that, you know, when I walked in the house, the house was really hot. It was warm. Well, if you leave the windows open and the boys are inside, she's obviously going to have the thought of you're either going to freeze or something's going to happen to you if I leave these windows open. I'm sure she probably just thought, don't hurt them. I will go with you. Just let me close the windows and I will go willingly. I think that would be the only way she would go willingly versus fighting because from the phone call to everything she did, she was obviously still fighting. Right. But I think she went willingly to make sure the boys were safe. Right. Well, and the neighbor seeing Michael King sitting outside in the Camaro, you know, in front of Nate and Denise's house. It's really sad to me because it's kind of a situation where you have to wonder, was he stalking her? Was it just, again, I go back to, was it just like a random case? And is that really a thing of wrong place, wrong time? Because it's not like they were at a store Mm -hmm. and he took her. And he was a plumber and this was a development area, right? That only had half done houses. Right. So it was in 2008 when the housing market was a little crazy. So all it was a big construction zone, right? All mm-hmm. of these houses got built, but they were not selling them. So basically it was an abandoned construction zone in the sense that you had houses that were half finished. You had houses that were empty. Them. Right. I bet. I wonder. So obviously there's no correlation from what you've said before. I wonder if maybe he did a plumbing job for them and maybe Nate didn't put two and two together because he was at work during the day. So Denise would have been the one that would have, you know, dealt with this guy or, or whatever. I just have a hard time thinking it's just, it's not that it doesn't happen. It's just hard for me to wrap my mind that you are just driving one day, you park your car, see windows open and you're like, this is it. Yeah, totally. And that's definitely where I was going with that is it seems weird. I get that random things happen. I understand that. But it would be more random if she was taken at a store. Yes. Right? Not just in a random subdivision, empty. And then it's kind of, you kind of have to think about the fact that, you know, just like you were saying, maybe he did a plumbing job for them. Well, did he know that Denise's husband was gone during the day? Mm -hmm. Because Nate did work three jobs, which to me... I would think that would mean he wasn't home frequently. Yes. And with this being in a more of an abandoned rural area, I can see. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I'm going to go with small town community. <laughs> it means the same. But I, I just think that maybe because he knew the area, maybe from being a plumber and done jobs around that neighborhood or whatever, you know, and losing, I'm sure he lost a lot of money with his plumbing jobs that he realized not very many people actually lived in this community. And it would have, it obviously was extremely easy for him to just take her and go. Right. And I guess it would make the most sense, you know, at the end of the day, I'm glad that her boys were okay. I'm glad that it did not involve the children. It's still sad either way, but it does make a lot of sense that she would put both of them in the crib close the windows and in her mind knowing that Nate was going to be home he would eventually get there right so the boys wouldn't be home alone the whole time but I just go back to it's still really sad the fact that she took the kidnapper's phone yeah she gave them her address let them know all the information that they needed to know including the fact that her boys were home alone she was throwing out so many hints to Mm -hmm. help me yes it's me 
Did uh, Michael King's cousin Harold, is that his name? Yes. Did he ever have any charges brought against him? You know, I don't think that any charges came against him. Of course not. Right. I just don't know how you do, you think that that's normal. Yes. You see a girl tied up in the back of the car, gets out of the car, says shouts, call 911. Exactly, shouts to call 911, once again asking for help. I mean, she did everything right. She was banging her hand on the window and Jane, Jane did everything right by calling and seeing that and seeing all of these things. But so many people, I'll say it again, let Denise down. And that's what's so disheartening about this case is it's so disappointing. And it's so disappointing that you can call into 911 so many times. And, you know, there was a point in in the episode where I said that Nate felt like all of these things were happening and he had a little bit of hope, like it's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. We're going to find Denise. This is okay. I think that's normal for him to feel that way. I would feel that way because to me, you've got all of these great things lining up, right? Here's everything you guys need. What are we doing? I'm lucky you would feel okay about that. I would not, but you know, that's just me being a skeptic. So, well, that's why you're here. Listen, but it it does make me sad, though, because I think that this type of situation genuinely can happen to anybody. Um, You know, I think there have been moments where you've called and actually said, hey, will you open the window to air out the house or whatever? And me unknowingly, sure, okay, you know, me thinking that nobody's going to kidnap me. And then I'm sure she felt the same way. Well, yeah, because who thinks that, you know, everyone always believes it's never going to happen to them. We say that all the time. I understand that. But at the end of the day, when these things come up, you really don't think it's ever going to happen to you until it does. So I get it. And who's going to think that when you open your window? Well, this is why you have security cameras inside your home, folks, like we do. (laughs) And you lock your doors. (laughs) (laughs) Who's to say? Nate Lee has since started the Denise Amber Lee Foundation, which has become his life mission. He travels the country telling Denise's story and helping 911 centers train their dispatchers to prevent cases like this from happening today. This is the case of Denise Amber Lee. Thank you for letting me tell you that one. It was quite a whirlwind of information. And even now, after I've read this so many times, but reading it again and saying it out loud, it's still one of those cases that it's so disappointing and it's so tragic. Can you imagine being Denise and thinking, all right, I'm being kidnapped, but you know what? I have this cell phone. I managed to give them all the key information and and make my kidnapper think that I was having a conversation with him. I included my name. You know, I included the make and the model of the vehicle. You would just think that with those, with that information, something would have happened for her, Yeah. right? And she tried so hard. And the fact that she took her ring off, it's just... That was so heartbreaking to read because I really think that was her saying, you know, it was me. All right, you guys. On to my favorite part of the episode. Here's this week's tea time. What's worse than making one mistake? Probably making two mistakes, right? This is exactly what a 57-year-old man from Richmond, Virginia did a few years back. Initially, he stole a bike. Then he had the not-so-bright idea of trying to sell it online through Craigslist to the person he had stole it from without even knowing it. (laughs) When the police officers visited his house, they discovered more than 10 bicycles, 57 bicycle tires, 24 bicycle wheels, 
26 bicycle wheels with tires, 21 bike seats, four bicycle frames, a gun, and ammo. Goodness. <laughs> Sounds like he had his own, whole entire bike shop downstairs. He he did. Listen, we have a best friend, and her husband used to work at a bike shop, and this sounds very familiar, minus the gun and the bullets. (laughs) So we were just wondering if that was you. Tony, is this you? (laughs) (laughs) You want to hear a joke? I would love to hear a joke. So it gets more expensive to buy a tire pump every year that passes. Do you want to know why? Yeah, that's kind of a random fact. You wouldn't think that would be more expensive. Tell me why. It's because of all that inflation. (laughs) Inflation. Inflation. (laughs) I love it. All right, you guys. So before we end this episode, we wanted to announce that our podcast, The Tea on Crime, has now joined Patreon. For those of you that aren't familiar with what that is, it's a monthly subscription page platform that will be ad-free with bonus episodes that are exclusively only to our Patreon listeners. Head on over to our page at patreon.com slash crime. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash crime to hear more tea being spilled. We're really excited to provide you with more bonus content. And then as always, you guys, we really appreciate your support. And I know I said it last episode and I'll probably keep saying it, but if you haven't been over to Patreon yet, there's a really good case on there about Robert Juan. I will keep preaching that because that case is insane. So please head on over and check out that case if you haven't heard it before or if you're interested in listening. That's it for today's episode. For all of our teaaholics that enjoyed our show today, please remember to go and rate the show on whatever platform you are listening to. Give us a follow on Facebook at Tea on Crime Podcast. Instagram at Tea on Crime Podcast, Twitter at Tea on Crime Pod, and TikTok at Tea on Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Britt. And I'm your co-host, Jessica. And we will be back next week to serve you more tea on all the things true crime. Bye!